Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. This is your guest host, Deb Hutton. And right now, joining me at my favorite time of the rush, it is the smart speakers. Today's smart speaker, John Moore, host of Moore in the Morning, and the Reverend Michael Korn, News Talk 1010 contributor. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Nice to meet you. So Liberal Cabinet Retreat kicked off in uh, John's old hometown of Montreal last evening. We've already had announcements from the Immigration Minister, Mark Miller, and we'll talk a little bit about that, backed up by the Housing Minister, Sean Fraser, this morning. I just asked our listeners to let me know, you know, what they would tell the Prime Minister that he needs to do coming out of this caucus retreat and going forward if he were listening to the rush this afternoon. And I will say I got... I got some, you know, some good tangible ideas around affordability and the carbon tax, but I also got a ton, which is not what I asked for, (laughs) a ton of, he just has to go. There's no, there's nothing that can save him. So I'm going to ask the question of both of you, John Moore, starting with you. What does Trudeau have to do coming out of this retreat? You and I spoke briefly this morning about that from my perspective, but want to hear yours. You know what? I, I was quoting this morning Mark Tui talking about Rob Ford when he ran for the first time as mayor. And he said the only thing Rob Ford needs to do to possibly win is to appear that he can win. And I think that's the narrative we're into right now is that Justin Trudeau, everybody's already writing his political obit. And all Justin Trudeau needs to do is press the reset button right now and say, maybe I can stay. Maybe you're going to reelect me. Maybe you don't like Pierre Polyev as much as, well, not necessarily me, but you would prefer me over Pierre Polyev. And all I would say, actually, in sort of concluding is we're stuck with the government we have now. And my policy is always that I am about policy. I'm not about who's in power. I couldn't care less. The morning after Pierre Polyev is elected Prime Minister of Canada, I'll say, okay, let's move forward. What are we going to do? So we're stuck with this particular government for at least another calendar year. So would we prefer they do things that we want done, or do we want to continue to grouse about it? All right, Michael Korn, I'll ask you John Moore's question. Well, I think retreat was one way to look at this. Maybe <laughs> surrender would be another way. Look, you, you guys know better than I do the, the politics, the art of the possible. Is it possible that Trudeau can win the next election? John's right. The government we have is the government that has power and does affect our daily lives. But it's a relatively impotent government at this stage. And we all know that at this retreat and in all of the internal discussions, Policy is being discussed, but it's not an end in itself. It's the means to an end. And the end is, can it re-elect us? What can we do now? We're in power to make sure that people vote for us. And anecdotally, when I, I know it's all very subjective, but I simply don't meet people who have any enthusiasm. I do meet people who say, well, I will vote for him. but And they said as though they've, they've just eaten food that they should have got rid of a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> but generally, it's hostility and where i have noticed this and i think this is deeply indicative it's younger people younger people who are socially liberal and naturally liberal or maybe even ndp voters look at their future the possibility that they could buy a home their future prospects and employment and they simply have no faith in trudeau and i think they'll either not vote or they'll hold their nose to vote conservative 
Um, speaking of what did come out already from the uh, the retreat in Montreal is an announcement, some of which we were sort of expecting, some of which had been had been out there, but has now been confirmed. And that is around student visas. There's there's three points that the Liberal government brought forward that the Minister of Immigration brought forward this morning. One is a, a cap on the number of student visas, which takes the number down. The second part of that is to um, not give any uh, further um, uh, issues of, of postgraduate work permits to international students who went through this one program that I actually didn't know about until recently, which is a public college private partnership program, which seems to be a lot of the colleges that are being accused of this um, diploma mill, if you will, sort of like just putting people through without really giving them an education. And then the third component of the announcement this morning was that spouses of uh, international students on less they, uh, their spouses enrolled in a graduate program such as medicine or uh, law will not be granted work permits, which of course would reinforce the notion that people are coming here to work, not to, through this program, through the student visa program, not to come and really get an education and stay here. Uh, what do you think about that, John? Is that enough? Is it enough of a, on this particular issue? Well, I like that we're having a discussion. Uh, Jen Gerson uh, at The Line actually wrote a really compelling column about the fact that it's finally time for us to have a conversation about immigration. And, you know, there's all these tears, right? Like, we have to be very mindful of the fact we have uh, temporary workers who are filling in for Canadians who aren't interested in those jobs. We have students. We have asylum seekers. We have refugees. And then, of course, we have newcomers. And I just think that the time has finally come for us to have a conversation about what number works for us. Because we have this ridiculous sort of folding in itself conversation about the fact that, like, we don't have enough housing. Oh, but by the way, we're going to bring 500,000 new people here, or we're going to have 300,000 students, or we're going to have, you know, this many temporary workers, many of whom would like to apply in order to continue to be residents in Canada or become Canadian citizens. And I just, the you know, the only thing I'm grateful for is that we're we're actually going to have this conversation. Yeah, uh, Michael, I would agree with John on that and, and have had some, some great call-ins uh, in the last week or two when I've been hosting the Rush uh, with Canadians about that, with our listeners about that. So what what is it that we need in this country and what is it nice to have, but we really can't accommodate it when it comes to housing? And, and the other piece, of course, is, is health care. Uh, so what would you say about the announcement we got today, which is just one little piece of the broader immigration discussion? Well, I think it's largely irrelevant. Uh, in fact, almost completely irrelevant. Yes, we should have a conversation about immigration, certainly defined and confined by decency, uh, by reality, and not playing any sort of racist card. And we all know that that's often used. And that there's a subtext when people often say, we need to have a conversation. What do they really mean by that? Because do we have to have a conversation about healthcare? Yes, we do. About policing? Yes, we do. When it comes to student visas, I, I went back to university. My God, how old was I? I was in my late, mid to late 50s, I suppose, a few years ago. And I really got to see overseas students, many from China, actually, are coming here to work extremely hard. And, and they're that is not the issue that we're talking about here. Those bogus colleges that are, are giving out diplomas that mean nothing, they should be closed down anyway. And actually too many of them were given university status uh, in the last few years, which was shameful. But let's have the conversation properly. Not about student visas, not about things that are on the, 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 the fringe of this issue, but what the Canadians want 
how can we accommodate a certain number of people? What will it do to our healthcare system, which is under terrible strain, but is often staffed by people who are new Canadians? So this is all part of a holistic argument, and we have to have it properly. And once again, that's not going to happen right now because we have a government that is totally dedicated to re-election rather than trying to run the country in the way it should be governed. Now, who was it, Kim Campbell, that said elections aren't time for policy discussions either? <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, it's, I, I don't disagree with what you just said, Michael, but that's pretty depressing when we are in an affordability crisis now, not in, you know, two and a half years after this government gets reelected or a new government gets elected. So should we not at least be having some conversation now and making some changes? These conversations are taking place every day. People are speaking about it to each other with their families and friends all the time. But I don't think you'll see any action from the government. And governments, two years, two to three years to really uh, introduce an economic policy and change things. There are many factors in housing. You've got to deal with the private sector. We have to talk about affordable housing and and government intervention. And that's not going to happen very much with conservative governments, I would think. But it's not just one aspect. And what we mustn't do is say, if only we reduce the number of people coming here, it would all be okay. It's not true. And it tends to play on the worst of political emotions. It is worth noting, though, Deb, that, you know, I, I, I think we are nearing the point where we're going to have these conversations without the idea that, for example, to question the number of newcomers is racist or xenophobic. And it's also worth noting, people always say, oh, well, the government, you know, the liberal government, they keep upping the number of newcomers because they're going to vote for the liberals. Well, I mean, everybody knows that was entirely the strategy of the conservatives. They kept on upping the number of newcomers and they Jason Kenney was key to this strategy of trying to get them to have a loyalty toward the conservative government. So let's set that stuff aside and ask ourselves, what is the reasonable intake of newcomers? And then another day, I would ask the question, and should we have an amnesty on the people that are here not legally? But I'm teasing that, not for now, but for another day. I'm kind of in, but we can talk about that later. (laughs) That was the voice of John Moore, host of Moore in the Morning, right here on News Talk 1010, and the Reverend Michael Korn, News Talk 1010 contributor. Coming up, you're going to get more from these two gentlemen as we discuss things like 311 and the Greenbelt. Steb Hutton, you're listening to The Rush. Welcome back. You're listening to Deb Hutton, and this is the time of the day on the show, The Rush, where we're joined by a couple of smart people to be our smart speakers. Today, it's John Moore, host of Moore in the Morning, and the Reverend Michael Korn, a News Talk 1010 contributor. So uh, I met with, uh, I met, I spoke with Robert Benzi earlier this afternoon about a story he has in the Toronto Star. Robert is the uh, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. The NDP at Queen's Park have released an email. They have obtained through the Freedom of Information process, which they say contradicts testimony that the Ford government political staffers gave to the Integrity Commissioner. Hopefully you're still with me at this point of this long (laughs) explanation. Um, But they say essentially that the Premier's office, who maintains, and the Premier himself, that they were not involved in the decision as to which land would be swapped out of the Greenbelt and therefore which developers would stand to gain from the change in policy. NDP say this is proof that that wasn't true and that some testimony given under oath um, is therefore wrong. John, your take on this, do we care? Is it significant? Is this just more of the same? 
Um, I think we do care. I'm not sure that a lot of people are paying that much attention, but it is it matches that thing that I've talked about on our show in the morning a lot, which is that a scandal sort of needs a one, two, three. And so you have the first instance of, well, this isn't entirely appropriate. And then you have something else that confirms that it wasn't appropriate. And then you have something else. And this does seem for this government to be getting worse. However, I'll also say this, and I've been accused of being a sucker for... Uh, Doug Ford and company, because I've always said, I don't believe that this was a genuinely corrupt thing. I think it was about Doug Ford is a businessman who thinks other businessmen are doing good work. Therefore, let's do work with other businessmen. And I think that's where we are with the green belt. However, this particular aspect and uh, Robert Benzie does amazing work. I'm always happy to have him on the show in the morning. Um, it shows that there's back channel communication and that there is the possibility of some pretty major malfeasance. Michael, would you agree with John or as Benzie and I discussed uh, earlier this afternoon, the fact that they reversed all the decisions on the green belt and therefore no one can, can stand to gain and the fact that the premier's polling numbers are sort of eking back up again says most people don't care well i don't know if people care or not but they should care and the, the policies are reversed not because they decided oh it's the right thing to do but because there was there was pressure and if it's true that on oath people told lies there certainly there have to be consequences to that i mean i don't know i wouldn't use words like corruption but what i would say this people with money and power spend a lot of time with each other socially they know each other they're friends they assume certain things and that's not really how the body politics should work it's meant to be for the people not for those fairly small group who have influence and all through this story it, it hasn't smelt right has it it's, it's always seemed to be that there were other interests now they might not be negative ones and, and most politicians i know actually want to do the best they can but that isn't the issue the issue is were people being absolutely honest with the public and i'm not convinced they were so yesterday, uh, my youngest, who's nine, she plays on a U10 basketball team. And, you know, it's 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 not house league, but it's it's they're nine. Right. This is not the big leagues. Ontario Basketball League. Uh, the parents from the second team they played were absolutely disgustingly obnoxious. <laughs> they brought um, those those uh, noisemakers and horns and bullhorns. And when our little kids, again, they're nine, uh, went to do their free throws after a foul uh, like they were doing the same thing, like they're behind, you know, the basket at a Raptors game trying to freak out the opposing team. We just found it obnoxious. And yet the ref said he couldn't do anything. He spoke to them. The coaches couldn't agree. You know, the one our coach said to the other coach, yeah, 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 I get it, whatever. And then finally the convener came in and, and they still really didn't stop. Should we be able to give referees and or coaches and or conveners a little more authority over parents gone around? I'll start with you, John. I, I'm guessing so. I mean, you know, I'm remembering back when I was in junior hockey and we had a coach who was an absolute, uh, as my mother would have said, a pill. And she actually took this little model of a horse and she cut it in half along the back and mounted it on a plaque. And she gave him the horse's ass trophy <laughs> at the end of your ceremonies. So I would like to see people get more serious about things. But I don't know what you can do to talk parents into any degree of sense. Or, I mean, frankly, 
the complete non-consequence of what it is like to be involved in sports at the age of nine and to argue over who the winner is. Yeah, I mean, Michael, that's that's my take. You know, you want to teach your kids not only how to play the game, but good sportsmanship. And honestly, my daughter came home and she's like, Mom, I couldn't even hear what the coach was saying. And at nine, they're still learning the game. So they're listening to the coaches on the sideline. But you've got kids, Michael. Yeah, you should have actually gone in the car park afterwards and, and set fire to their cars. That's probably the <laughs> best way to do it. I mean, we should, have should I do a legal disclaimer here? <laughs> <laughs> joke, joke. Uh, we, we have four kids, and I mean, this will sound terrible, but it was the, the two boys rather than the two girls who were most into sport, and they were really into it. I mean, our oldest son played for the Toronto Lynx, all in soccer, and the other one played semi-professionally all over the world in the end. But um, what I noticed, actually was that the higher the level, the less of this parental nonsense there was. But at lower levels, when things really shouldn't matter very much, it's purely for fun, sometimes parents could be pains in the backside. And I have to admit some culpability here. I mean, when I think back at some of the, I mean, I, I wasn't particularly bad, but yeah, there were times when passion was probably too high. But there, there are certain parents who are so loud and so angry they're allowed to be loud if they are abusive and offensive. If they try and intimidate an opposing player, then absolutely, I think a referee or an umpire or an official should say, you're out of here. And if it, and you're embarrassing your child, you're embarrassing other people. And for most of these sports, particularly at nine years old, it's meant to be about, I'm sorry, but you know, having fun. Uh, later on, things do change. It becomes competitive. But I mean... Is it any different, though, from how you see people behaving in public? Most people are lovely and decent and pleasant. But on a train, someone doesn't want to move their bag, even though it's full. Uh, someone won't get out of the way if another person won't help. Yeah, I'm afraid society is composed of all sorts of people, and some of them aren't particularly nice. <laughs> 311, do you guys use it? And did you know there's an app? John, um, I know there's an app. I've never used it. Uh, Joe Cristiano, who produces our show in the morning, went online and said, OK, it's great if you want to report a dead raccoon or the fact that your garbage did not get collected. But it's pretty useless for everything else. Everything else. I certainly have used um, Twitter at 311 or at Toronto 311, whatever the handle is, in order to report a uh, pothole. But I think if they want to migrate us over from the phone line, then the app has to be improved. And worth noting, incidentally, before I'm done, the app for Green Pea is like the greatest app ever. Yeah, I made that uh, the point earlier today. Really quickly, Michael Korn, the reason we're having this conversation for our listeners to know is that the city is at least having a discussion about uh, trans moving from the 311 phone and live agent because it costs between 11 and $16 per call to the app, which costs $0.10 cents per interaction. Good idea, bad idea, or we need to continue both? Well, I'm, I'm laughing because of what John said. The only time I've ever used 311 was when we did have a dead raccoon. In the back of the <laughs> so can I just say, guys, uh, I had John Tory on earlier today to talk about this. And the number one <laughs> phone call are dead animals in your backyard. Well, not only that, they said put it in a plastic bag and put it outside. I actually paid my two daughters to do it for me. <laughs> and this was not years ago. This was last summer. Ah, anyway, apart from that, I had no idea of a disparity in cost from what, $15 to $0.10. Cents. Well, then yep. 
I mean, of course we have to. I mean, it's a ridiculous amount of money. Man, and we're out of time for me to f- push back on that. John Moore, host of Moore in the Morning. You'll hear him back on News Talk 1010 at 6 tomorrow morning. And the Reverend Michael Korn will hear him back, if not before, next Monday on Smart Speakers. That's it for me for uh, this hour. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, so much more, including a change in nut policy in our schools.